So before we begin today again, I have a little introduction. I'll probably keep pointing out some things about John since it's such an unusual gospel until we really get the feel of it. Um, remember that the prologue is chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. And this is going to be just key to everything in this gospel. Everything that John is going to teach us is going to point back to that. Now, since this book is all about, what is that about? That's the incarnation of God, right? That's the big church word we use. So this gospel is going to show us what incarnation looks like. What does grace upon grace look like, taste like, feel like, even smell like? So this is a gospel that we say to be experienced. And I was thinking on the way this morning that last week I gave you candy so you could taste uh, the kingdom. I am not going to run around with a whip and yell at you this morning. <laughs> That will end. Uh, but anyway, this is a book to be experienced. This is a book where John wants you to come to know not about God, but to know God intimately. Remember that signs are miracles. He will never call them miracles. And that they're signs because they point to a bigger truth about God. Now, we are picking up today immediately, immediately after that wedding feast of Cana, where Jesus turned water into overflowing amounts of the finest wine ever. And I want you to um, do me a favor. This story is told in all four Gospels, which means we pay attention to it, right? But as preachers, we are taught to focus on the story at hand and to try not to let other versions of the same story seep into our understanding of this particular version. So I'm going to ask you the same thing, to try to um, forget what you might have heard or thought about this story from the other Gospels. Uh, the main thing is where Jesus in the other Gospels says, you've made my father's house a den of robbers. And if you notice, today he just calls it a marketplace, and those are very different things. So we're going to stick with uh, John's version because he tells his version for a particular reason and to a particular audience. And once again, that audience is a group of outcast Jews. And they are outcasts because they have chosen to follow Jesus, to trust and believe in him. And in doing so, they have gotten themselves thrown out of the synagogues. This is a really crucial time in the development of Judaism. Because the temple has been destroyed by the time John writes this. And it will never be rebuilt. And so Jesus followers who are Jews are threatening the tradition on top of the tradition being threatened by we have no temple once again. So try to imagine yourselves hearing this as outsiders of the faith, those who need reinforcement and fortification in your belief in Jesus. So with that said, I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, indeed, settle our very busy minds. Open our hearts so that each one of us may hear what it is you have to say to us in this place and in this time. And as always, I pray that my words would be your words. So, this is quite a story about Jesus, isn't it? We have gone from fun-loving, party-saving Jesus last week, that guy who turned some water into 1,000 bottles of the finest wine, to Jesus, herding animals with a whip in one hand and tossing tables over with the other. What is up? What has gotten into Jesus this week? It's a great question, and perhaps a bit of a scary question. What's up with Jesus, and what does it mean for us? 
Now, if you Google images of this story, artists have had a heyday with it for centuries, and I'm sure that many of you here have seen the meme that asks, what would Jesus do? Well, keep in mind that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. And I have to admit that for me, it is one of those stories when folks say to me, oh, I just love Jesus. He's so kind and sweet all the time. I want to say, have you read the Gospels? But for many folks, the idea of an angry Jesus is difficult. But I think that we deny the scriptures completely if we deny that he felt anger. And he did feel anger in more than just story. While he may have felt anger at times, though, it must be stressed that he never injured anyone in his anger. The Greek is hard to tease apart in John's telling of this incident. It's unclear if Jesus drove the animals and the people from the temple or if it was just the animals. But it is clear that he used a whip and fashioned it the way he wanted to get his job done. Now, the other thing I want you to remember is the power of a whip is in the crack of it. A whip is not used to strike an animal in hurting it. It is the sound of the cracking whip that gets the animal's attention, that gets the animal to do what you want it to do. And while he did indeed flip the tables of the money changers over, tossing the coins and cash boxes every which way, he didn't hurl them at the people. So it's important to begin with the clarity that, yes, while Jesus was angry, Jesus does not hurt back in anger. His words of anger may hurt feelings. They may make people uncomfortable. But that is where growth is found. None of us change or grow without some stimulus that makes us uncomfortable in some way. And that is what Jesus' anger will do in the temple. It will make people uncomfortable. It will create chaos and confusion that will get attention. Now, it's a complicated situation for several reasons. People were required to make sacrifices at the temple during Passover. It was part of the scripture law and part of temple life. And people were also required to pay their temple tax in the local currency of Jerusalem. And this presented some problems because the Jewish people were scattered around the Mediterranean area at the time. They didn't all live in Jerusalem. But they were required to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem every Passover. So if you were coming from afar, it would be rather inconvenient to be dragging along livestock for your required sacrifice once you got to Jerusalem. It would be much easier to buy it there, hence the marketplace of sacrificial animals. As well, you might very well be arriving with foreign coins in your pocket, and that would be no good at the temple. They needed to be changed into silver shekels, which was the currency of the temple. So the money changers functioned as your first century currency exchange system. And in fact, all of this is laid out for the Jewish people in chapter 14 of the book of Deuteronomy. God tells them to do exactly what they are doing in this scene that we enter today. So what's the problem then? Folks seem to need the services of the marketplace and the money changers. What's gotten Jesus in such a bunch? The key to me seems to be later in the story. After he clears the temple area where all this is going on, the church authorities say, who the heck are you to come in here and wreak such havoc? I always find it interesting that they don't ask him why he's clearing the temple. They ask him, by what authority? 
So let's step back and talk for a minute about the temple. This is the second temple. The first temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians around 586 BC. It was rebuilt when the people were allowed to return from Babylon around 538 BC. And Herod then entered an elaborate construction phase in 20 BC that greatly enlarged that second temple. The marketplace that Jesus is dismantling here was situated in what was called the Court of the Gentiles in the temple. It was an area on the perimeter of the temple that was open to everyone, Jews, Gentiles, foreigners, men, and women. This temple, this enlarged grand second temple, will be destroyed in 70 CE by the Romans. And we learned last week, and again this morning, that this Gospel of John was written late in the game of Gospel writing, and scholars believe it was written after this temple was destroyed, much after. So John writes this Gospel knowing what's going to happen to this temple. John knows that the temple is no more, and that is important to understanding his purpose here. Now, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those Gospels that have many similarities, this is the event that is the last straw for the Jewish leaders. This is the event that leads to Holy Week. It comes at the end of their Gospels, and it is the only time that Jesus goes to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem in those Gospels. But here in John, this story comes right away, chapter 2. And Jesus will make two more trips to the Passover in Jerusalem in this gospel. And John has placed this story of an angry Jesus immediately on the heels of our party-loving, abundant grace at a wedding Jesus story. And that is all important as well. For this gospel, this event is the beginning of Jesus' conflicts with the religious hierarchy. You might even say at this point it's their curiosity that is being piqued. By what authority do you do these things? Give us a sign. It's almost like they're saying, give us a sign like the great prophets Elijah or Elisha, and, and maybe we'll take note of what you're saying. But we learned last week that asking for a sign in John's gospel isn't going to get you what you think. Those who need signs to believe are left out in the cold. A sign, a miracle in John's gospel is just a pointer to some greater truth about God. If you need a sign to trust and believe who Jesus truly is, you are out of luck. So, of course, Jesus provides no such sign in this exchange in the temple. Instead, he gives them a famous Johannine answer, and by that I mean an answer that confuses and confounds rather than clarifies. At least that's how it first appears to us. His answer, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, that clears everything up, right? The temple leaders go to the obvious, the literal, the temple they are standing in. What are you talking about? It's taken Herod 46 years to get this temple the way it is now. There is no way it could be rebuilt in three days. And then that is where I think we have the tell or the clue to what all this might be about. John tells us that after Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples remember this exchange in the temple, after. And they realize then that the temple he was speaking of was himself, that Jesus is the temple. So let's return once again to the importance of the temple to the Jews of the time. Remember, there was only one temple. 
all your sacrifice, which was your offering, if you will, could only be given at the temple in Jerusalem. Synagogues were for praying, preaching, and teaching, but not for fulfilling the laws of offering. And if we remember this past fall when we learned a bit about God's dwelling with the people, the temple is the eventual product of God's presence with God's people. The first time that God truly accompanied the people as a community was in the Exodus story. God called Moses to lead the people out of slavery, and if you recall, God went ahead. God led the way, showing up as a pillar of smoke. Moses was the only one who met with God, but God's presence was palpable finally with all of the people. God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had come to fruition. There was an actual people, a nation, for God to be a part of. Eventually, God instructed the people how to build a box to hold the tablets for the Ten Commandments and how to keep that box in a tent, which was called a tabernacle or the tent of meeting. The tabernacle tent of meeting traveled with the people. They pitched the tent wherever they went. Eventually, God directs Samuel that it's time to build a permanent place for the tabernacle, and hence the first temple was constructed. And we spoke about the needs of the people to have a place to gather and worship God. It was where God promised to meet the people. The tent of meeting, as it had been called, now had permanent walls. Now, God was and is everywhere, but the temple held the promise of God that God would always meet you there in the tent of meeting. And now, now along comes Jesus, and John has told us in the beginning of his gospel that the word, God's word, became flesh and tabernacled with us. The word in the Greek, going back to the Hebrew, is actually tabernacled. We usually say the word dwelt among us, but tabernacled or even pitched God's tent are the literal words. So the word became flesh and pitched its tent among us, the tent. And what is the promise of what happens in that tent, that tabernacle? That God will meet us there. So this exchange of Jesus in the temple courtyard, in the hindsight of his death and resurrection, for the disciples was that Jesus, the word dwelling among us, is telling us that he is the temple not the building. He is saying, a bit cryptically, that God will now meet us in a new place. The temple is no longer necessary. What is necessary? Jesus. A relationship with Jesus and God. Last week I told you that everything John wants to tell us about Jesus is contained in that prologue, that everything we will hear will somehow point back to that prologue, and that everything Jesus does and says is a revelation of God in some way. So last week's story of abundance told us God cares about our relationships, our joy, our families, our celebrations. It told us that grace upon grace flows to us from the least expected places in the least expected ways. And this week's story, this week's story points back to that prologue and claims loud and clear, the word is flesh. The word God has indeed come to live among us. The word God now meets us in this person, Jesus, not in the temple, not in any building. 
This story is telling us that if we are looking for God to meet us in the temple, we are looking in the wrong place. And John will underscore that idea by having Jesus return to the temple two more times, but in between each visit, the living tabernacle, the tent of meeting, Jesus himself, is going to go out, out into the world, crossing borders and boundaries of every kind, saying to us, we meet God in Jesus in every nook and cranny of the world with people of every sort. As well, this story of an angry, frustrated Jesus affirms the prologue's claim that the word became flesh, meaning the emotions that each and every human being experiences will be experienced by this word made flesh, this Jesus, this God is every bit as human as we are. And that entails every emotion that we have, every longing, every physical situation, all of it. The difference, of course, will be in how this human will handle all those emotions. And in that respect, this human, Jesus, shows us what it means to be fully human. What does humanity, with all its challenges and struggles, look like at its very best? Well, we look to Jesus for the answers. So I find this story affirming of all the crazy emotions that I am capable of experiencing. As well, this story helps me see how I might handle those emotions in a healthy way. And that healthy way includes speaking my truth to others without harming them in the process. I don't always hit the mark, but at least the model is here. Now, you might say we're still kind of left with the question of what has sparked Jesus' anger here. And I'm not sure, after years of preaching this story, if I think I am any clearer on that. Is it that he knows he is the living temple? Is the main question in this passage a sort of where does God reside thing? Are his actions calling for a complete dismantling of the temple as he knows it is no longer the meeting place of God, rather he is the meeting place of God? This question of the location of God, where is God, where do we worship God, is going to come up again in this gospel. So perhaps we cannot know what spurs his action by only reading this story Perhaps, like the disciples who remembered this incident after his death and resurrection, we will not understand this story until we have read the entire gospel. We are in the season of Epiphany, that time when Jesus is revealed more and more with each passing week. In John's gospel, those revelations always reflect back those claims of the prologue, and this story seems to reveal the Word made flesh is more than just a man. The Word made flesh becomes the temple, the tabernacle, the meeting place of God. If you are looking for God in the temple, turn around. God is staring you in the eyes in this man named Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. So perhaps the question for us today is where do we meet God? Do we come to worship with the expectation that we will indeed encounter the living Christ? Do we have a zeal and a passion for what that living Christ has to offer to us? For the Hebrews, the temple was where heaven and earth meet. Now, 
Now heaven and earth meet in this baby born in a stable. Heaven and earth meet in this man who saves a wedding with more wine than we can fathom. Heaven and earth meet in him, not inside some temple building. Heaven and earth meet everywhere that we allow the living Christ into our lives. So I guess the question for us is, where and when will we allow God to pitch the tent of meeting in our hearts? Are we willing to accept this Jesus as the meeting place of heaven and earth? Will we seek God in him? Will we take and cling to the claims of the prologue that the word has been made flesh and tabernacles among us? And if we are willing to stake our hearts on that claim, what can we expect? Well, John tells us that we can expect the gift of grace upon grace, the gift of true, abundant life, the gift of life at its very fullest. This gospel asks us, what are you looking for in life? And where are you looking for it? The best life has to offer is found when we let the living Christ pitch the tent of meeting inside our hearts. Amen.